Good evening. More on the Queen and race. The House battles down to the wire as it looks like the plan is going to pass. And Governor Cuomo in, speaks to uh, in, enhance eligibility to getting the COVID vaccine. And a interesting story about a development project that is based on a document that has been redacted by the city as if it was a secret uh, of the uh, deep secret of the state. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, March 9th, 2021. The trial of Derek Chauvin, the former police officer charged with killing George Floyd, continued today. It uh, it started on Monday with jury selection and is scheduled to last three weeks in that phase with opening statements slated for March 29th. Chauvin has been charged with second degree unintentional murder and a second degree manslaughter charge in the death of George Floyd. Videos showed images of Chauvin kneeling on Floyd's neck during an arrest on May 25th, 2020. Floyd's death sparked worldwide protests announcing a pattern of unarmed uh, black men, women and children being killed by police. And the fallout over Harry and Meghan's bombshell interview with Oprah Winfrey is reverberating around the world, much of which was once held under the sway of the old British Empire. The first modern world-spanning superpower, Britain's colonies, once included India, Australia, Canada, and huge swaths of Africa, among many other places, it is said that the sun never set on the British Empire. Now, the 1,200-year-old monarchy has been shaken by allegations of racism not in some far-off land, but Buckingham Palace itself, over a story that someone associated with the royal family was concerned over the potential skin tones of Harry and Meghan's son, Archie, since the mother is biracial. In a statement on behalf of the Queen today, the royals say Harry and Meghan's charges must be taken very seriously, but British TV personality Piers Morgan was was uh, removed as co-host of his TV program Good Morning Britain this morning today after more than 41,000 complaints were made to the government during after he denounced Harry and Meghan in an argument with his co-host author and activist Shola Mo Shogbamima the behavior of Harry and Meghan who are spray gunning his family on global television as Philip lies in hospital. You might laugh. I don't think it's funny. I think it's piling hurt hurt on the Queen, who is already suffering greatly from her husband's illness. I'm going to respond to that. What I don't think is funny, I'll tell you what I don't think is funny, is the fact that you are such a disappointment. I wish to God one day you would even surprise me. You You constantly use your platform as a wealthy, white, privileged man with powered influence. To oh, what a load of nonsense, honestly. What a load of race-baiting nonsense. You, you can keep shouting. that the royal family has any racist undertone or actions against the first biracial person simply because you're in love with the queen? No, you I, think, I think what you're doing now... You can love okay. the queen, but you should be able to call out actions done by the royal family when they've got it wrong. Yeah, That's I'm not going to let you trash the queen. Sorry. Piers Morgan was removed after a cloud of complaints after he made the previous remarks. The role of the Queen of England is not much different than that of the President of the United States, says journalist Ian Williams, who usually covers the United Nations. Williams reminisces about growing up in England in a family that didn't pay much attention to royalty. My family has never been particularly monarchist. At the time of the coronation, 
the locals put the stage in front of our house because my father refused to put out any flags <laughs> for the coronation. The point about the monarchy, if you think about it, when I first came here and the first Iraq war was brimming up, people seriously told me, it's my president, I must support my president. Because we'd had constitutional change in Britain, unlike in America, she had less overt influence. I'm talking about Mrs. Windsor now, or Mrs. Saxe-Cobain Gotha, or Mountbatten, whatever she, she is now. She managed to represent the nation without being visibly and overtly tied up in the politics. In that sense, it's symbolic. She's a figurehead. We know it's a lot more than that because the crown as an institution has a lot of power. More to the point, it's the head of a whole system of snobbery. In this country, when you say the queen, they don't think you're talking about the queen of Thailand. They don't think you're talking about the queen of the Netherlands. They know which queen you're talking about because for the English-speaking world, she is the queen. It still has this aura of prestige. She's still the Queen of Canada and Australia. I think she's Queen of Jamaica. I'm not quite sure. She's Queen of New Zealand and about 30 other countries around the world. Her head's still on the coinage and the money. As long as it's symbolic, it's fine. But she's always apparently taken quite seriously this idea of the Commonwealth as a sort of empire substitute. When the sun was setting on the empire on which the sun never set, they reinvented it as the Commonwealth. And they put together the Commonwealth of Nations. It started off as the British Commonwealth instead of the Empire. And this was quite cute. But then it happened that the Irish, first of all, said, well, you know, not really. Just because Britain declares war, we're not going to declare war. Australia and Canada and the others, they're part, they were part of it. But then the others, like India, Pakistan, the African countries, they didn't want any part of the monarchy. They like being part of the Commonwealth because they're like-minded people, similar political systems they could talk to. A lot of them still use miles and yards and things like that. They managed to get along. But it was a multinational Commonwealth, multiracial Commonwealth. And the Queen was apparently fairly serious about this, God bless her. At first, you probably thought, oh, whoops, goody, you know, got grandson who's going to be um, symbolic of the Commonwealth. These are inherently bigoted upper-class twits. Prince Philip is a notorious bigot. They lived in stereotypes. They saw nothing wrong with them. That's obviously what was at the back of people's minds here. Harry specifically said that he never thought of racism in his entire life. I mean, this is a guy who went around, if you remember that story, that picture of him wearing a, uh, like a Nazi uniform. The Hitler thing, yeah. Yeah, hey, yeah. It gets worse. I have seen pictures of Prince Philip in a Hitler youth uniform. They were all Germans. Remember, the British royal family, as Kitty Kelly pointed out, they're all Germans. They spoke German to each other. Do you think this will have an effect on Prince Harry? Well, look, he shows signs of being socially progressive already. I don't know whether this will drive him into radical politics and whether, whether he's going to be the red prince of, of, of Britain, you know, all power to him if he does. John Lennon, he could be the new John Lennon, you know. Yeah, I'm not going to defer to him because he's a prince, but, you know, he seems there, and, you know, and it gets really bizarre because, you know, Yes, there's racism in Britain, but this colorism is a bit much, really, because, you know, um, who really would have thought? I don't think most people in Britain 
wouldn't have thought of Meghan as black. It has to be pointed out to them. Britain never really went by the one drop of blood rule. I'm interested in it insofar as it reflects on the society and yeah. its path and how it reflects on the world's interest, especially America's, that's so obsessed with it. Because it's got everything for Americans. It's got race uh, in a different form from how it appears in Britain, I suspect. But it also has the snobbery and the royal family, all of these other things. She is still the queen. Ian Williams grew up in England. He lives in the United States where he's covered the United Nations as a journalist. And it turns out that Queen Elizabeth II is the royal monarch of the island nation of Jamaica. And the Pentagon is set to approve an extension of the National Guard deployment at the United States Capitol for about two more months as possible threats of violence remain. That's according to defense officials speaking today. The officials said final details are being worked out, but Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is expected to give final approval to have Guard troops continue to provide security in Washington at the request of the Capitol Police. Officials have been scrambling in recent days to determine if and how to fill the request for more than two thousand guard members as the original march 12th deadline for them to leave washington looms austin is expected to make a decision very very soon asked about the security threat the spokesperson for the pentagon said any decision would be based on local law enforcement concerns about the needs of the capitol police the threat was tied to the far-right conspiracy theory promoted by QAnon supporters that former President Donald Trump would rise again to power on March 4th, the original presidential inauguration day. That day passed with no problems, but law enforcement has said threats to the building and personnel remain. And Democrats exulted over their looming victory in the fight to pass the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan. It passed a key Democratic-controlled House committee today and is scheduled for a final vote tomorrow. When President Biden signs the law, it will be arguably the single biggest economic rescue package passed in United States history. But the measure failed to win one Republican vote, although the president says most GOP voters want the bill and therefore making it bipartisan. GOP leader Stephen Scalise from Louisiana begged to differ. He says the plan is socialism in disguise. You have the crisis on the border. Today we're seeing three or four thousand illegal crossings a day at our southern border. It is a national crisis. And it needs to be confronted by President Biden, and he refuses to acknowledge this. Uh, there are super spreader caravans coming across our southern border. I think it's an interesting misplaced priority uh, that the Biden administration's agenda is to open America's borders and close America's schools. Democrat Denny Hoyer, Maryland, says the same Republicans who are trashing the plan now will be taking credit for it later. They'll be at the ribbon cuttings. Uh, they'll be there saying the schools are open, kids are in school, isn't that great? Um, yes, it is great, $130 billion later in this bill, and they voted against it. This is not an unusual performance for our Republican colleagues. We have over 70% of the American people who think this bill ought to be passed, and a majority of the Republican Party thinks this bill ought to be passed. I don't know who our Republican colleagues are listening to. That's Denny Hoyer of Maryland. South Carolina's Jim Clyburn says the bill will go far to redress the wrongs visited on black farmers who've been the victims of decades of discriminatory agricultural programs. This may be the biggest help that black farmers have gotten since the Civil Rights Act. 
This legislation takes a look at the work of those 1890 schools and the discrimination that had taken place with black farmers. I used to run the South Carolina Commission for Farm Workers. And I can tell you, I'm well aware of the inequities that existed in that system. This legislation tackles that issue like no legislation we have had in my lifetime. And I think that alone makes it worthwhile. South Carolina's Jim Clyburn, 1890 schools are now known as land-grant colleges. They were supposed to, they were set up to teach agricultural science to Americans, and um, black people were just locked out of the uh, assistance that should have come. In related news, President Joe Biden will not be attaching his signature to the $1,400 relief checks that are expected to be mailed soon. A break with his predecessor, who last year had President Donald J. Trump printed on the economic impact payments approved by Congress. The next round of paper checks will bear the signature of a career official at the Treasury Department's Bureau of the Fiscal Service. Trump insisted last April, after more than $2 trillion in coronavirus aid was approved, that his name be on the $1,200 relief checks a first for any president. At the time the checks were released, the former president said, I'm sure people will be very happy to get a big, fat, beautiful check, and my name is on it. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. A sixth woman has accused Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment, saying he touched her inappropriately in the governor's mansion late last year, according to a report Tuesday afternoon by the Albany Times Union. In a conference call with reporters, the governor said he knew nothing about the latest charges against him. Cuomo added of his other accusers, no one told me at the time I made them feel uncomfortable. The paper reports the incident occurred at the executive mansion in Albany. The woman reportedly works for the governor and her name was not released by the Times Union. The report adds the woman's complaint had been reported to Attorney General Letitia James's office. James this week appointed two investigators to review the previous claims. There have been bipartisan calls in recent days for Cuomo to resign. He has said he will not do so. Cuomo has apologized to anyone he has caused to feel uncomfortable, but has insisted he never touched anyone inappropriately, noting he frequently hugs and kisses people when he sees them. And during that same call, Cuomo dismissed the question about running for a fourth term next year. Cuomo said, today is not a day for politics. I'm focused on my job. He's given every indication in recent months he will seek a fourth term and has raised money to do so. A victory in 2022 would surpass his late father's time in office. Democratic leaders in the state Senate have called for Cuomo to resign, saying the problems Cuomo is facing have created a distraction. Assembly Speaker Carl Heastie stopped short of doing so, but said this week Cuomo should consider whether he can remain in office. Meanwhile, at a news conference dedicating a new mass vaccination center, Governor Cuomo announced that supplies of the COVID vaccine are increasing, prompting a change in basic eligibility for the shot. Now, instead of 65, you can get stuck starting at 60. We're pleased to say today that our first level was 65 years old plus, right? Because COVID affects older people more. So our our initial threshold was essential workers, nursing homes, 65 plus. We're going to drop the 65-year-old plus to 60-year-old plus 
and that's going to start tomorrow. So now 60-year-old... <laughs> 60-year-old plus are going to be available. They can start making appointments tomorrow. They can make them at the mass vaccination sites. They can make them at pharmacies. But that will start 8 a.m. tomorrow. 60-plus, that means people like as old as I am, now will be available, eligible for the vaccine. And Cuomo adds, next week, New Yorkers will get a St. Patrick's Day present. They can get their shots almost anywhere. All sites starting March 17th, next Wednesday. All sites, county sites, FQHC sites, mass vaccination sites. We have thousands of distribution sites. All sites, to simplify the situation, can vaccinate anyone who is eligible. Every site can vaccinate anyone who is eligible. With one exception, pharmacies still will only be doing 60-plus and teachers. And that's Governor Andrew Cuomo. And the future of real estate development in New York City may have more in common with the fight against climate change than previously thought. The East Side Coastal Resiliency Project is a massive plan to raise East River Park, raise it above sea level. A 1930s Robert Moses project along the FDR Drive south of 14th Street that's beloved to thousands of mostly poor residents, many living in housing projects that were swamped by flooding during Superstorm Sandy in 2012. But the project has come under criticism by residents who say the city overturned a previous agreed-on design and are forcing a project that's twice as expensive that many residents are bitterly opposed to. A document was used by the city to justify the change, but when residents finally saw the value engineering report, they were shocked to find much of it blacked out as if it was a CIA document. An activist opposed to the project is Tommy Loeb. The document goes back to... 2018, when the city abandoned the community plan, which was developed after Hurricane Sandy, to protect the community. And the community spent several years and came up with a plan uh, that destroyed about a third of the park, maybe, and cost about $750 million. The city all of a sudden went quiet, and then in December of 2018, announced a new plan which would destroy the entire park, use a million tons of landfill to raise it 8 to 10 feet, and to protect not only from a Sandy-type event, but allegedly from sea level rise. Even an independent expert who came in had questions about that plan because he didn't even think it was adequate enough to protect the community from sea level rise. To justify that plan, the city constantly made reference sometimes veiled reference to what they did, which was a value engineering report. Basically, they said discounted the community plan and made their plan the the best plan. So we kept asking to see that plan, and they kept dodging it. Eventually, we entered New York State. New York City has what's called a Freedom of Information Law which makes most documents that the government has, or at least the city has, available, except those that are or private communications between agencies or within an agency. The first comment we got back from the city was that the document didn't exist. They made us appeal, 
And then all of a sudden, this document appeared in February. Describe the document to us. It's two documents. One was a study done by a consulting group. They need a million tons of landfill to do this, and there were questions about whether that was even viable. There are issues involving the FDR drive. There are issues involving a Con Edison line. They allegedly had an outside consultant study, a group of outside consultants study all these, and in the report, they list hundreds of pages of advantages and disadvantages. And literally, every one of those pages is totally blacked out, not readable. It's more than a spy novel done by a CIA agent would have redacted. Right now, the city is still denying releasing the unredacted report. We've had to hire a lawyer, and we're going back, and we're appealing on the basis that the city can hide certain privileged documents, but when a document leads to a final decision, as this one did, that is not protected in any way. Is that what they're saying, so, that these are internal discussions and not uh, privy to the public? Right, exactly. They say these are interagency or intra-agency documents, but when you hire an outside consultant, you can no longer call that an intra-agency document. We're not interested in the phone numbers or the email addresses, but we would like to know the names of the individuals and who they represented as part of this study. What happens next? We're appealing their redactions, and if they fail to reveal them, we will be going to court. The city just revealed to Community Board a One that they have a plan from the Battery to the Brooklyn Bridge of doing landfill, of building 300 feet out into the East River and basically replicating another Battery Park City in order to do the resiliency work there. They say they can't, they have no way of paying for it and therefore they want to build out into the East River 300 feet or slightly less and then do development on top of it. Tommy Loeb, he's an activist with the East Side Coastal Resiliency Project. Environmentalists are facing opposition to their use of information freedom laws to get documents in general across the United States. Last week, the United States Supreme Court ruled that federal agencies aren't required to hand over draft documents related to the impacts of an EPA proposal on endangered species. The justice is said in a 7-2 opinion by Justice Amy Coney Barrett, a, co a lower court misinterpreted the Freedom of Information Act when it mandated the disclosure of draft opinions that should have been protected by the law's exemption for records from an agency's deliberative process. The decision rejects arguments from the Sierra Club and its allies, a broad coalition of environmental business and media interests, who argued that a ruling for the government would allow agencies to skirt disclosure requirements by stamping draft on internal records that would otherwise be subject to a Freedom of Information Act. Elena Saxonhaus is senior attorney for the Sierra Club. She's said the court agreed with, Sierra, with the Sierra Club on the key principles of the case, which is that agencies cannot simply declare documents drafts in order to avoid public release. As the Trump administration showed, such loopholes are prone to abuse.
And that's some of the news for Tuesday, March 9th, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News. Thanks for living. Uh, thanks for listening. I was going to say God save the queen, but I won't.